0: Welcome back to the Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes under Not the Public Podcast and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. The reasons behind the horrific Parkland shooting have led to separate dialogues. One, heard a lot in the media, is to blame it all on guns, the NRA, and the Second Amendment. The other narrative has to do with the mental health of young men in a time when masculinity is under scrutiny. It's a topic receiving a great deal of publicity because of the work of University of Toronto professor Jordan Peterson. He's examined the stresses on men in an era where young men are often cast adrift in the cultural change. Their values diminished. This dislocation has produced dramatic results. Since 1966, there have been about 140 shootings that are termed mass shootings, and only three were by women. Why would men of this age lash out in such horrific manner against young students, religious people, or in the case of Sandy Hook, against children? Is there something in the nature of men that causes such deadly incidents? Author and broadcaster Damon Fairless examines the role of masculine violence in his new book, Mad Blood Stirring, The Inner Lives of Violent Men. He begins a journey with an incident from his own life to study the topic, and he asks how men like himself and others can deal with simmering anger in a changing world. He joins us on this episode of The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. Welcome, Damon, and congratulations on the honesty in the book. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you start, as I say, with an incident from your own life on the subway, headbutting someone on the subway. Can, can you describe yeah. what happened and, and why it spurred the book?
1: Yeah. I'm, so, I mean, this isn't the first time I had done something like this. I think it was the first incident where I really had to kind of ask myself what was going on in my head. So, just to take it through you you know, quickly, um, I uh, was on the subway with my wife. We were coming back from skating downtown. It was New Year's Eve, uh, and it was a lovely evening. Um, and uh, there was a guy in the subway who was, uh, you know, he's loud. He was drunk. It was New Year's Eve, as I mentioned. But he was, you know, he was he was just being dumb. Uh, he was opening the, the, the doors of the subway, sticking his head out. Uh, the concrete pillars were going by, you know, within inches of his head. And, you know, when... Someone's doing something like that. The, the crowd reacts in a particular way. It got really hushed. People were getting freaked out by the guy. And he was a big dude. He was a big guy. And uh, I was, you know, I think I was tired by that time. There's big crowds, and I hate the subway. I hate crowds in general. And I was, you know, I was, I was feeling uh, <laughs> uptight myself. <laughs> and there was just something about this guy that irked me. And, you know, obviously someone, he needed to be checked but the way i did it you know i walked up to him and i uh i told him in a not very nice way to sit down and then from there it escalated and it ended up uh that i, inevit- I eventually just lost my cool and headbutted him in the face and then uh, we you know a real brawl erupted and he was arrested and i was you know i wasn't sober and I was uh, the uh, nice upstanding citizen with his nice upstanding wife. And uh, the cops came and took our statements and I got off. And, you know, if he, he was he was the guy who was causing the most trouble. But really, I think what started me uh, examining myself is that when I started thinking about this incident and other instances I had been in, and it's always like this. There's always some dude who's being uh, unpleasant and, uh, you know, pissing me off. Uh and, <laughs> Um, I think it's a pretty common feeling, but, you know, and I think it's a pretty common experience, but I, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, acted in a violent way, you know, on a number of occasions. And you know, I think what I really wanted to get at was that, you know, just before that happened, I was livid. I think I had like a, what I'd call as a cold rage that was make, it just made me want to go and punch his lights out. Uh, I'm not especially proud of that, but it was it was important for me to kind of recognize what was going on there, uh, because, like I said, it's a common experience. So I I just kind of use that as the starting spot. I think it's a relatable story, maybe a little more uh, kind of cheap, lousy action hero than uh,
0: most people. But, you know, I think I think people are going to relate to the feelings, at
1: least that I that I had
0: there. Were you, were you being protective of your wife, or did you also see yourself maybe as being the advocate for everybody on the car? Did that come into it as well? Yeah, it came in a huge amount.
1: I mean, I think when someone's being threatening or making, you know, I, I definitely felt threatened. My my threat response obviously tended to go towards the fight rather than the flight, but I definitely felt threatened, uh, and I definitely having my wife there, and her her, her sister was there as well, and my brother-in-law. And yeah, the other people on board, for sure. I definitely had had that going on. I would also say, and I don't know if I would have admitted it because I don't think I was quite as aware of it, but I would think I was kind of using that uh, as a bit of a justification for picking a righteous fight with a dude who I knew no one else really liked. Yeah. So there was a little bit of like... There's no downside. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I'm not... You know, there's a, there's a legitimate use of force and protective force. You know, that's why we have police and military, right? Um, so I'm, I'm not saying that this, like, I, I don't think this is a, you know, I don't, I'm not crazy. I don't have mental illness. I wasn't high or drunk. I had this natural reaction that I think I, I was a little misguided. But so, yeah, that protective instinct was 100% there. Mm. I think I used it as a bit of an excuse to get a bit
0: of a kick in a way, if I'm honest with myself. Mm. Have, having been through a couple of road rage incidents where you go from zero to 100 miles an hour really quick in your blood pressure, et cetera, I, I, I understand the feeling. I know the feeling and how it you know, how it just gets out of control to a certain extent. Now, you said you pitched the book to the publishers because you wanted to see if you could run with the wolves. What do you mean by that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, well, I forgot I said that, but yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I, I think there's part of it where I, uh, well, here's my long-winded explanation. <laughs> uh, you know, you grow up as a boy and you're, you're a boy, you're a child, you're small, and you're in a world of men. And, uh, you know, as you grow up, I, uh, I, I you know, I became a big guy. I'm a big guy. I'm 6'3". I'm 250 pounds. Uh, but you never, you never really... Um, you never really know if you can handle yourself. And I mean, I am, I am, I would describe myself as a, a sensitive guy. I am, uh, I'm, uh, you know, creative and I, you know, cry when I hold babies and I'm, you know, I'm a softie. Right. And as a guy who's got all that kind of the, the gentler side of him going too, I think there's part of me, uh, that wanted to know whether I had that ability to be tough or hard as well. And um, I think that, uh, you know what it is, I mean, I I don't think it's all that different than saying that, you know, you're going to join a hockey team and push yourself in a grueling physical way and see if you, you know, test your metal physically, Mm. test your metal mentally. There, there is uh, as, I guess, as unpopular as it is to say these days, I definitely find it valuable or important to be able to, in addition to being the modern man in addition to being genuinely caring and sensitive, also be able to to know I can handle myself and mm-hmm. I also think that there's a inherent uh thrill or satisfaction with being able to do that, not saying that you should go headbutting guys yeah I, but i but I think part of my motivation. To write the book, and I think largely also to get in fights like that has been a
0: bit of me testing myself you know yeah you you, you also said that fear often manifests itself as anger what does that mean yeah
1: i i uh, i think that's I think that 's accurate i mean there 's that kind of um, you know we hear like when women when women get angry they 'll often express that emotion as crying, and as a guy. You know, if you if you having an interaction with a woman and she's crying because she's angry and you're saying, "Oh, sweetheart, it'll be okay," and she's like, "I don't want you to say that. Goddamn, and I'm mad." And she, you know, <laughs> uh, I think we've all had that experience. And uh, I but I think the converse is true too, where guys will tend to express a whole array of emotions from fear to depression to uh, uh, you know complex emotions as anger. So like I I have the weird response of. If I hear someone if I hear someone's been killed or, or died or 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 sick sometimes it makes i the first emotional impulse I have is anger and then I'm like well that's weird why am I angry that someone has cancer i i i mean it's it's it makes sense i suppose but but it just seems to me and I don't know honestly whether it's you know how we're socialized or how we're built as a creature uh but I do believe that often men feel a whole bunch of things that aren't really have you know, necessarily anger inducing as anger. Um, So I I definitely like, and I don't think I would have, again, I don't know if I would have admitted it to myself because I don't know if I understood it to the same extent, but when I'm on the subway and there's a dude being like this, or if I'm feeling threatened, that threat often just jumps right to this sense of incredible rage. Like, like you say, with that zero to 100 feeling in a car, when road rage happens, I mean, I think I, I get like that too. And I think that's because, there's uh, several tons of metal that just about killed you. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm
0: afraid of that. I am definitely afraid of fast machines killing me.
1: Yeah. But
0: I don't feel it as fear in the moment I feel it as anger. Because I mean what I'm hearing what I'm hearing you saying too, and is that there are many manifestations of this innate anger or whatever it is in inside ourselves. I mean for instance, desire is also an outgrowth of physicality it 's also an outgrowth of that same sort of feeling of something taking over your body in a physical way in man as well do you mean do you mean sexual desire yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's a it's a physicality it's a physicality that sort of takes you over as well and and you know I mean there are so many manifestations and you you deal with this in the book too there are so many manifestations of this physical this physicality in men, and it 's hard for us sometimes to sort them out.
1: Yeah, and I'd be lying if I said I understood, I'd sorted them out perfectly by any means. But I guess, you know, I, I strongly believe that we are, you know, we are, we as as a species, as an animal, we evolved emotions, you know, millions of years before we ever developed rationalism and logic. And I think that we still fight with, if you want to be a good moral upstanding person, if you want to use logic to make decisions, you still have to battle with these incredibly powerful emotions. I mean, I think that's essentially what morality is, is deciding to how to override powerful desires. And those desires come in a million forms, right? There's sexual desire, there's the desire to eat and drink into oblivion. <laughs> Is the desire to uh, you know not do your work because it's boring and it's more fun to watch TV or whatever? I mean these are all natural, natural uh, creature comfort desires, right? Um, I, I tend to think that if we don't acknowledge those desires, we have less ability to control them. I think I mean that's kind of the premise of uh, you know Alcoholics Anonymous or any other uh, you know uh, substance abuse thing where you you have to acknowledge that these you have this powerful drive to do this thing that can be pretty harmful. And you have to figure out how you kind of uh, override that and gain control of it, right? So I, I guess the 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 value in discussing these things when I was writing the book is really important to talk about. You know, when I'm des- describing these disturbing crimes that some of the more heavy-duty violent guys did, you know, the importance there is not to just you know like a true crime. It's more about uh, what what was driving them to do this kind of thing and how do you uh, like, is it possible to interrupt that? You know, that, that was kind of my line of inquiry.
0: Yeah, I mean, reading the book, I, I kept thinking about how urban life has also changed us. And I'm wondering, you know, what part of the problem is it? Well, many, many of the occupations we used to do involved a physical component. Yeah. You know, farming, et cetera, being phased out. And here we are in a big city like you were talking about, thrown together, all these interactions, et cetera. We have fewer and fewer outlets for that physical aspect. How, how much of the of the issue is that? Uh, I mean, I'd be lying to you if I said I I knew I'm not
1: an expert, but I guess I, I, I can say for myself personally, that, uh, physicality is super important to my sense of not going crazy to not, uh, (laughs) and, and that includes, you know, getting in, in altercations and stuff. I, if I'm exercising regularly and watching what I'm eating, um, you know, which is a part of physicality, I'm less inclined to get in that wound up, uptight, blame people for my internal feeling state. Mm. And I can't, I mean, I do, I strongly believe we're physical creatures. And I strongly believe that we are, while we can and have a moral duty to to control our inner lives, those inner lives are shaped by deep history of our species. And that deep history, as you point out, has a lot to do with physicality. I mean, mm. You just think about how much we walked or how much work getting food took. If you've you've ever, (laughs) whatever, tracked an animal through the woods or dug up tubers to eat, you burn a lot of calories doing that, right? What I mean, though, is that I think that I mean, I think studies are pretty clear. If you look at, for instance, the high rates of depression and anxiety, it correlates, you know, one of the first pieces of advice a a decent counselor is going to give you is you should exercise regularly. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, we have a very sedentary lifestyle. We don't have a ton of outlets for any sort of physicality. We get inside our heads. We sit in front of these stupid machines that we're talking about, you know, (laughs) myself included, right? Uh, And, uh, you know, we did not evolve sitting on our butts in front of static machines. We evolved uh, running around trying to eke out a living, right? And, yes, I I, I mean, I can't draw the lines – uh but but i i i guess i can say that i i think like if, to come back to testing my metal or running with the wolves or whatever i do think probably a part of that comes from the fact that i haven't had that opportunity in a real way because i live a nice cushy urban life right yeah.
0: You're listening to The Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is author and broadcaster Damon Fairless, who is the author of Mad Blood Stirring. I, I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about how the rise of feminism and sexual diversity is affecting the male paradigm when it comes to violence and men's expression of themselves.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you just asked a big question. I don't know if I have any answers <laughs> to it. But yeah, no, I mean, I think it's,
0: I think it's the thing that that uh, cuz these ma- guys you deal with in the book I mean uh, the, the, the various people you deal with in the book are all dealing with these things in in, in various ways the things you and I have just talked about so I'm mm-hmm. wondering your sense of having talked to these people how big a factor that is as well with a lot of these violent guys um in terms of uh, the ri-
1: the rise of feminism I mean I I would say that um a lot of these guys, I would say, have got into situations. So just maybe because it's such a there's so many guys in this book and so many different types of guys. Uh, Give us an example, yeah. Let's take you know the serial rapist that I write about. He started uh, assaulting women in his mid-teens. He lost his own virginity raping a woman, um, and I strongly believe that uh, he, um, if he had had, uh, he you know he didn't have a dad growing up. Uh, he was a poor kid he uh was not he didn't have anyone to talk to i do think that if he had better role models and stuff uh, he probably didn't need to be the guy he turned into right um i uh i mean i i mean his attitudes about women though i think were a contributing factor to why he was able to turn off his empathy towards them i mean he loves his sisters he loves his mom he doesn't see them as objects but and he told me that he had female friends that he liked and respected and thought of them as sisters, but he was able to pick a victim and just kind of dehumanize her. And then after weirdly, not weirdly, I mean, I think it's actually an important thing to think about. He was, he, he, he had this thing, his kind of trademark was after he had assaulted a woman, he'd apologize. And I think that that apology was genuine because I think he was, his empathy was turning off and then coming back online. And he was apologizing for like, Oh my God, what have I done? And then he kind of had this ability to compartmentalize what he did uh, and kind of hide it from himself in a way. Um, I mean, ca- teenagers are good at that on a whole bunch of fronts, but he he was especially good at compartmentalizing this
0: bad behavior. I don't I don't know if that's addressed your bigger question. I, I guess I guess again in reading the examples in your book, I and I see them against this this society now where the the, the def- definition of being a male. Uh, perhaps being a feminist man uh, has changed for a lot of guys, and they feel totally insecure uh, and and a lot of time they bottle it up until bang they, it comes out in a really terrible outcome because they they don 't know how to deal with the changing role of men i mean Jordan Peterson talks about it a lot in his book about talking about the mass murderers who 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 you know see their whiteness and their ambition and their physicality being portrayed as negatives. Uh, and many of them store it up and then kind of have this moment. Well, you, again, you talk about a bunch of those kind of guys in the book who have this moment of just terrible behavior.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I frankly don't know if anyone actually understands what's going on in the heads of the, these these mass killers. Um, I do tend to think it has something to do with guys feeling resentment and I mean, there's a lot of mental illness in there too, right? Like the yeah. lot. Of the violence I'm talking about is the kind of you and me as regular dudes. You know, we have a certain palette of emotions that are normal. Yeah. I think often mental illness uh, presents itself in, in a, a murderous way. But there, I mean, I do think it comes back to some extent to those that idea of um, guys expressing complex emotions like depression, isolation, loneliness. And misery as anger. And there's a very important thing that I that I think is really important to talk about is that one of, with my own violence, and I saw it throughout all the guys, including a lot of the guys who were sexually violent, there is this amazing ability because these urges, these emotions that promote or, or spur you on to in my case, uh, headbutt a guy or punch <laughs> guy or whatever. Yes. You feel so justified in that moment. Yeah. Like you these emotions are strong and they're strongly convincing in the sense that they will override your ability to be rational. Like I, I didn't need to get in any of the fights I had been in. It was dangerous and stupid to do that. But in the moment it felt
0: not just okay, but like the only thing to do. A lot of hockey fights are that way. I mean, uh, yeah, you know, no, that's, that's what ho- Yeah. Like, absolutely. I'm that's defending how- the team. It's, it's not just this guy. Yeah. He's made me mad or he's clipped me, but there's and, a whole and- righteous thing that goes with it. That's right. And then there's on
1: top of that, there's all of the things like, you know, the spectators want to see it. You want to stand up in front of your guys and show that you've, make, you know, test your medal in front of them. There's pressure from, you know, the economics of hockey are such that yeah. there's pressure to do. There's all these other factors. Right. So, again, you know, like, I don't think you can understand this stuff as just inherent drives by any means. There's all these other issues there, these social and environmental issues. But I I I, I guess, you know. My advice for guys who are feeling this confusion about manhood is I don't find it all that complicated. I do – and this is unpopular, but I do my own personal take on manhood, and I'm not suggesting this needs to be anyone else's. But I do take being a man as a protective – I have a duty to protect. Now, how you implement that is, is really the important thing. I felt like I was protecting my wife. I felt like I was maybe protecting the people on the subway. What I was doing is I was escalating an already volatile situation on that subway. It Mm -hmm. felt good to me and it felt right to me. It felt awesome. But what I was doing is making that situation way more dangerous. You know, at least a dozen people got involved in that incident. Imagine if someone had a knife. Imagine if someone had picked up my skates and slashed, you know, the back of my head or my wife or something like that. So I made, in the misguided belief that I was being a protector – a natural urge, but I escalated the situation. So now I still think that I need to be a protector, but part of how I do that is saying, okay, if I'm going to really be protective on the subway, what I do now is I carry a $50 bill in my wallet. And if some, and I've done this once already, if some guy is starting to get loopy, you know, there's a lot of people who are crazy. A lot of people are aggressive. A lot of people who are drunk on the subway. If someone's getting loopy, I can pull out a $50 bill. It's bright red. And you say, Hey man, you're having a shitty day. Let's go. Uh, let's, get you, let's get you a case of beer. Let's get yeah. out of this situation. You de-escalate. Now, when I, when I hung out with a lot of fighters, I've done enough work in a gym. By no means am I a good fighter. But the guys who are good fighters, the guys who are truly good fighters, true tough guys, they're calm. They're not, they're not doing the stupid, immature thing I was doing starting fights in public places. They know they can handle themselves. Yeah. And they know how to handle themselves without getting their blood boiling. And so I guess, uh, you know, when I think about like, I, like being a man to me is about being a smart, protective, genuinely protective guy. It's and about part restraint. Of that, it, restraint, yeah. And, and also responsibility and morality are deeply important parts of manhood. Yeah. You know, I've got, a, I've got a young daughter. You've got a grandson. The, the world is full of people who genuinely need us looking after them. And I don't mean that in some sort of patronizing way, but we, the adults of the world, need to make
0: sure that the smaller, younger, more fragile people out there are doing okay. Now you're, and and you're, you're getting to a point – actually, you used a word earlier in the interview, and, and I just wrote about this recently on my blog. The, the word is empathy, and, and yeah. I, I think that's the biggest thing is that uh, I see a lack of empathy so much. I mean, I, I watch MMA, and I, I know those guys are in control maybe of themselves, but I, I see so many middle upper-middle-class kids who watch that kind of violence and, and get off on that kind of violence and are able to detach themselves somehow from the fact that this is hurting somebody. And that they're able to lose their empathy just for the sake of entertainment, and I and I see that lack of empathy in so many places in society today. And as I say, you just brought up the word. Yeah, no, I I mean I think I think that that word is probably at the crux.
1: It's it's one of the key words in, in this discussion of violence because, um, really, I, I mean, if you if you can shut off your empathy. You can do a lot of harm, right? Yep. I, I, and the thing, the the positive thing is empathy is one of those things we can teach. Like I, I tend to think. Um, so it's really interesting you brought up MMA because I have very mixed feelings about MMA. I, I really like doing MMA. I like being in gyms with guys who do MMA. Some of my very best friends are are quite accomplished MMA fighters. The vibe in a good gym, and there are good and bad gyms. The vibe in a good gym where guys are respectful of one another they teach one another they use restraint they practice empathy they help other guys and and women overcome their insecurities they help them get stronger physically these are positive environments and with restrained restrained use of 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 uh teaching someone t- how to use physical force in a restrained and responsible way in an environment that also cultivates empathy and breeds self-confidence can be a good thing. Yeah. But then if you look at if you look at like the UFC and the business of promoting fights, it's pretty unempathetic, bloodthirsty stuff. Yeah. And it's, I, f- I found some of the guys that I – who had been pro MMA fighters, low level but still pro fighters, they would look at the UFC and be like, you know, bro, I'm not into this. I don't like that culture. I'm not one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's you can do you can do MMA well and you can do it in a way that's horrible and you'll get those guys who train in a gym and then take it out on the street and do harm. Right. So it's not like I'm not suggesting it's a cure all for anything, but but like you say, it, if you can introduce empathy
0: into any environment. Um, I mean, that's that's you've won you know a lot of the battle, right? That's the military. The first thing they do is take away your empathy for the enemy, and it allows you to do the job that you've got to do. And uh, I mean, I understand it in the military context, but uh, yeah. Alternatively, you know, I mean, the Canadian Canadian forces have this
1: incredible history of peacekeeping, and those. This is what um, I write about. A friend of mine who uh, died in Afghanistan. One of the things that I really admire about our military forces is that we have this. We have Uh, men and women going into dangerous situations putting themselves at considerable and very real risk and often the missions that they're doing are these protective missions where the the bottom line is to protect and that's an empathetic um fundamentally that's an empathetic mission right and also you have to deal with guys who are threatened you know there are real bad guys out there who really are trying to kill innocent people and you do have to deal with those and you have to kill them sometimes, or, you know, at least threaten to kill them. Uh, so it, you know, that, that, that empathy, like you say, that is, that's the most
0: important thing, you know? Mm, yeah. Hey, listen, uh, thanks very much for, for a courageous look at this topic in your book. Um, I appreciate you coming in today, Damon. it's my pleasure. It's been a a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobig and our guest this episode, author and broadcaster Damon Fairless, author of Mad Blood Stirring. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts at iTunes and also on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns and my podcast and my poetry at the website. Also, I'm appearing three times a week with Jeff Salmon on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167 Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I'll post those conversations on my website, on my Twitter, and on my Facebook page, too. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count.